0: on today's Compassion Radio.
1: He's a very courageous person. He's a pastor. So I had lunch with him, but I had to go inside a restaurant which was covered with tarps in front like it was under construction, but it wasn't. You had to slip between the tarps, and as soon as you did, there were two guards with AK-47 machine guns to protect you in case there was a bomb attack or something.
0: Hello, and welcome to Compassion Radio, always timely and always on the edge. We're glad to have you along for today's faith adventure. So, the world, it would seem, has abandoned Afghanistan. It's a sad story that's being played out on our TV screens if we're willing to look. But is the long destruction of a once-proud country and the resurgence of the Taliban the only story? Not on your life. And Dr. Jim Jennings of Conscious International knows that for a fact. He's been there many times, and he just recently returned from a reconnaissance mission to see what can be done to make a difference for the most vulnerable, and how to do it in the name of Christ. This is the second episode of a three-part series. If you missed yesterday's broadcast, please take the time to catch the podcast at CompassionRadio.com. We'll start with a recap of how we ended yesterday's broadcast.
1: Think about that. In one month, you'd spend $220 million to save people's lives. How much did the war cost? Yeah. $300 million a day for 20 years. So now the World Food Program relies on donations from different countries. They've asked for the contribution from every country. So far, they've got 15% of the money they need to yeah. do this. So some people are going to go hungry. Some are going to starve. And how do I know some are going to starve? Because when we were working in Afghanistan during the war, we helped to feed some people up in the mountains who were snowbound. And an agency came to me and said, can you help us? We need to get through the snow to get up into the mountains. And if we don't do it right away, they'll be locked in for the winter. So the road is not open, but we can plow it and we'll get up to the mountains. If you'll pay for the four truckloads of food up there. And so we did. So the point is that I know that many people will die of starvation if they're snowbound on the mountains, and especially since they had a big drought this year and the crop failed and uh, the war was going on and people were unable to store enough food for the coming months.
0: And also for storing water as well, because they would have to have stored water in warm weather, which would be actually in their homes or in the courtyards and kept warm because they'd be covered in straw and other kinds of things to try to insulate them. And when those tanks are empty, a whole lot of snow doesn't help you. It's like being in the middle of a drought and a deluge at the same time. You have no food, you've got no potable water to drink, and you are snowed in. The likelihood of that kind of starvation you're talking about, Jim, is grim. I have to say that because there may be many people that we can't reach, can't help. And I don't know what to say and how we pray for that, but it's a reality.
1: I've counted the number of refugee camps, 44 large official camps, Plus, there are many unofficial camps, perhaps a uh, hundred settlements that are unofficial from Afghanistan alone. And so, after half a century of war in Afghanistan, many of the people actually live outside the country. And the ones who have come since the, uh, the middle of August and the fall of Kabul, the abandonment uh, by the American troops at the two main crossing points, have come and are settled. Either in Baluchistan uh, near Quetta, the city of Quetta, or in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa near the Peshawar-Torkham crossing. So this is a really sad update that I'm giving you of the 100,000 new arrivals reported on December the 27th. About half were children. Mm-hmm. So these are concerns that, that we have for the humanitarian situation there.
0: I have at least some hope, Jim, that on the secular level, the world's awareness and responsibility, at least a sense of responsibility, is still there because governments through the World Food Program are aware that it's going to cost a certain amount of money every month to feed those who are left after these conflicts. They will not reach everybody, but at least the countries themselves are saying to each other, we as nations have to do something about this. And I would think that if we can put uh, positive pressure, not negative pressure, but positive uplifting pressure on our own elected representatives to say we need, as a people, to follow through and at least take care of those that we have endangered or put at risk now because of the wars that we keep funding, we're not doing that anymore. We've stopped the fighting, yet we still have a moral obligation to take care of those that we have potentially harmed or those who can't respond well or bounce back after the war. And there's going to be needs there. So we want our governments to do what they can do, and so they will to a certain degree. What is it that Christians, people of conscience in the West through organizations like Conscience International, can be doing that the government can't do very well? What is it that's distinctive about the work you do that we should be aware of and pay attention to and get behind that is just beyond the capacity or at least the scope or the vision of what the governments can do?
1: Well, the United States usually does more than anybody else uh, to help other people around the world. But in this case, because it's so unsettled, what happened in Afghanistan after the Americans left, it seems that the U.S. has turned its back on that whole problem, which is very bad news. And my recommendation, I think, in answer to your question is, for years, you and I have worked with organizations like our own that go and take the aid directly to the people, so up close and personal. And when you do it that way, you're sure that it gets through. It's not involved in a huge uh, overarching program internationally, and it has an effect. So that's what we are doing, and we believe in that method
0: absolutely. So it's like the starfish story where you have a whole ocean's worth of starfish on a beach. You're not going to get to every single one of them, but you got to start somewhere. And you have your places, and God has given you entry into places others can't go or have not gone. So you'll start with the places you can go. You'll do the things you can do, like the girls' school there on the border with Afghanistan. Tell me about the man that you're working with to get this thing up and running, because I know he had big plans for doing this inside Afghanistan before the government fell. And his hope was stretched to the limit, but he didn't give up. He's now helping you figure out how to make the most of the opportunity you now have with the refugees. So tell me a little bit about him.
1: Well, he's a very courageous person. He's a pastor. He preaches uh, a lot, is in demand, even outside of Pakistan. I won't mention his name, but he has worked in Afghanistan and worked with us in Pakistan. He's also a person who is influential. He's connected with various people. The last time I was there before this, trip, he said, I want you to meet the security chief, for the KPK area, which is the, the old British Northwest province area now called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. And it's right on the troubled, tribal area between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I had lunch with him, but I had to go inside a restaurant which was covered with tarps in front like it was under construction, but it wasn't. You had to slip between the tarps and as soon as you did, there were two dirty guards with the uh, AK-47 machine guns to protect you, hmm. and so we could sit there in case there was a bomb attack or something. That the facade was supposed to be covered. That's one meeting, and in this trip, I had a very important meeting with the high official, and I can tell you about it if you're interested of course. in hearing about that as well. Well, it really was because of the collapse of the American efforts to reform and remake Afghanistan, which is one of the most fanatical Muslim countries in the world, as everybody knows by now. And also because of this wave of violent religious fanaticism spreading from West Africa to Indonesia along the 10th parallel across Mm -hmm. Africa. And because Pakistan is the epicenter of much Islamist propaganda, we felt that it was important to make efforts as Christians to seek peace and pursue it as Scripture commands us to do in Psalm 34 uh so that was something that we had engaged in in other countries in Syria, Iraq, Iran, Sudan before this event of the lynching or really the torching of this Christian man happened a few days ago in Pakistan. Uh we felt that way before that happened, but that made it even more important to make efforts as Christians to seek peace and pursue it. So I asked our friend there to arrange a meeting with the religious affairs advisor to the prime minister. So we did have that meeting. He preaches in the National Mosque, the third largest in the world, to about 30,000 people every Friday. Hmm. And he's dressed and he wears a beard and he looks like the Taliban clerics in Afghanistan, but he's a different person because he's memorized the Quran in Arabic, making him uh, what they call a hafiz, uh, a highly honored person, so I was able to converse with him in Arabic, but I wanted to discuss with him a copy of the Harvard scholar Samuel Huntington's book, The Clash of Civilizations, because Pakistan, in fact, is in a precarious position between India and Afghanistan, and is balancing between the great powers east and west, the China and the U.S. primarily. We had a very good meeting, and he agreed to take us to the border areas and to introduce us to the prime minister. We didn't accomplish that on this trip, but we will in the future.
0: Jim, the notion of being peacemakers is something I wanted to unpack just a little bit, because you're traveling now with a cleric, which most people in the West, just by looking at him, say, oh, he's an enemy. And you don't see him as an enemy. You see him as a potential ally in something that's very important that you believe that God is sending you to do in that country. But it is something worth considering that the whole notion of peacemaking is not something that means being peaceable with others or to create a kind of amicable situation where people are getting along nicely. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's talking about those who will actually engage the enemy and will work on something that will be possible for those who are caught in the middle, not just to survive, but to flourish. So the idea of making peace is something you have to do with your enemies, not your friends. Friends, before we jump back to this important conversation, a quick reminder that it's your generosity and support that make Compassion Radio possible. Especially in a year like this, we need your vote of support. Call 1-800-868-2478. Write us at Compassion Radio, Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859, or give online at CompassionRadio.com in order to keep this program coming to you each day. And hear me when I say this, we are very thankful for you, especially now. And now, back to the interview. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's talking about those who will actually engage the enemy and will work on something that will be possible for those who are caught in the middle, not just to survive, but to flourish. So the idea of making peace is something you have to do with your enemies, not your friends. He has sent us out to do that, but we have a hard time comprehending of ourselves as being those who would go to others that are not like ourselves, not to convince them but to literally forge peace, make treaties, create an environment where people can survive the vicissitudes (laughs) of what happens at the very top levels of power. So just, if you can for me, describe what you mean when you go to these countries about being a peacemaker.
1: Well, uh, Bram, I think it's very biblical. In fact, I think it's the heart of much of what the New Testament teaches us to do and to be as examples in this world. And when you think about it, as some person wiser than I has said, you can't make peace with your friends. You already have peace with your friends. You can only make peace with your enemies. And if you read Leo Tolstoy's books, which are based, of course, on the New Testament, he is always saying that you cannot overcome evil with evil, Mm. period. You can only overcome evil with good. You can only overcome hatred with love. Yeah. That you know is upside down from what the average uh, political message is, but it's actually the gospel message is true it is. You, can, you cannot overcome evil by evil, you can only overcome it by good, you cannot overcome hatred by hatred only by love, and that I think is just really all through the New Testament. so if people would read and heed, they would be engaged in that sort of thing. I do believe
0: so when you see somebody like this cleric who has memorized the Quran, and because of that has great esteem within his own community and within all of Islam. You travel with him because he has an intention to. What is his motivation for working with you?
1: Well, I think it's partly patriotism for his country and strong belief in his religion, but he's also urbane enough and knowledgeable enough about the world to know that there is another part of the world besides Pakistan or Central Asia or the countries in the Middle East that are predominantly Muslim that you have to deal with this. And also, if you know anything about history, you know that there's been a continual conflict And what Samuel Huntington, the Harvard scholar who's written the book Clash of Civilizations, refers to. If you, you deal with that history, you will know that it's been a military conflict for a large part of the time, all the way from 732 in the south of France to 1529 in the nation of Austria, where the Muslim-Christian conflict was a battlefield fight. Mm-hmm. And so he knows that in this world, because it's shrinking every day with the capability of travel that we have, um, that there must be some kind of interconfessional, intercivilizational dialogue. So what I've said with the organization U.S. Academics for Peace that conducted these meetings with heads of state in the Middle East countries is dialogue is essential Mm -hmm. or conflict is inevitable. So you choose which you want to do. You want to talk and discuss things with others with whom you disagree, or do you want to fight and kill
0: them? And that is the decision that we have to make. Are we going to become warmongers or peacemakers? I mean, there's not a whole lot of distance between the two. You have to choose. And you can't go along with the status quo forever. And the status quo has been always on the edge of conflict for the past two or three hundred years, at least. And now, of course, the great potential of warfare to destroy vast swaths of humanity and the environment is upon us. We can literally do that now. And I think about the position of Pakistan itself. You've watched them for 50 years and seen how they respond to the superpowers around them. And they obviously have made the decision that the only way to survive in a world of superpowers in conflict is to become a superpower. And they have managed on the nuclear front to do that very thing. Per capita, per income, per whatever, by any measure on this planet, they have invested more into their strategic munitions than any other country on Earth. And they have matched India, a country that's ten times their size and population and area, like missile for missile, practically. They are ready to engage the world in fire missiles as necessary if they really truly feel that they're under existential threat. And that's the only way they see themselves surviving in this kind of crazy world. So that's their choice. They have chosen that path because that's the only way they see forward to survive. And you walk in there with a different religion, with a different perspective on what's possible. Because you see in the scriptures that making peace is not only our imperative, it's actually possible. Because God doesn't set us up to fail. We may fail in certain initiatives, but the whole notion of overcoming evil with good is something that is prophesied to succeed. Somewhere along the way that God is going to make it possible for true justice and peace to be possible for all mankind, and not a false one like we read about the Antichrist making it happen for a short period of time. True lasting peace is something that God intends for his people, the human race. And so you engage in this generation to do those very things. I need you, my friend, to tell me where are we going next in this? How are Muslims and Christians going to be able to create some decent relations so they can actually hammer out truces and write the fatwas in in Muslim circles and the treaties in Western circles to make it possible for people to actually live on this planet without there being constant war?
1: Well, I advocate uh, that we don't shy away from the difficult questions, the issues that and need to be fronted and and discussed. So therefore, if you're going to have peace by interaction with the person who is different from you are, then you have to sit and talk with them. So that's what we advocate. When it comes to Islam and Christianity, there's a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. One is the history. Another is the theology. Another is the path forward. How do we, since we live in different parts of the world usually, We can't expect to transform all of it to our own image. Mm -hmm. We have to accommodate to the culture of other religions and races and uh, nations. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And when Christians have tried to make the kingdom of this world, I know that it was Pope Sextus in, uh, what, 1528 or 1538 that set up a papal bull that told the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, that they were permitted to endorse the efforts to chase down and punish heresy. Mm -hmm. So it turned out that when the Kingdom of Spain, under Ferdinand and Isabella, agreed to endorse the church's efforts to rid itself of heresy, it turned uh, what was a religious issue, mainly into a political weapon, which they used to destroy their adversaries, their political adversaries, not the religious ones, and the result was the Spanish Inquisition. That went on for almost 300 years before it it ended. It started in 1478, ended in 1834, 150,000 people persecuted, and you may remember the Monty Python show that (laughs) made fun of the Spanish Inquisition. It was funny as it could be, but it wasn't funny to the people who were tortured on the rack or burned at the stake.
0: And it was also the moral foundation upon which the ethic of purging the new world of any false religions was justified. So when the conquistadors came over, they didn't just topple governments and then establish colonies and try to improve the status of those who were living there and therefore mutually exploit and encourage each other. There was just a, a general attitude of they must be destroyed. Anybody who doesn't bow to our God is obviously bowing to Satan and therefore is not worth living. And that attitude went on for hundreds of years as well. And my guess is it comes from the same root, when faith becomes political.
1: Exactly. You may be referring to the movie The Mission, which Mm. is an amazing description or depiction of that particular process. And it was very brutal against the Indians who were tortured and killed and slaughtered in the New World. So Christianity has failed when it becomes political. If you look at the wars of religion in Europe, it went on for 100 years, and nothing could have been worse.
0: Yeah, Our best, often we don't become political, but it's kind of a sore subject to bring up right now for Americans, because those who are most religious happen to be feeling the effects of being in power, and the temptations are pretty strong. And yet we encounter that temptation a lot throughout history. Israel knew about it, too, and when they turned to political or secular salvation, they lost pretty much everything, time after time. And we didn't quite learn from that lesson. It's not to say that I'm expecting all of America to fall or something. I'm not. I think America's going to come through this storm just fine, as tough as it is. We're all going to get through the pandemic eventually here, and we're going to reboot. But we have a lot of resources from which to reboot. The rest of the world is not quite that full in the pockets. They don't have the resources ready for it.
1: When it comes to Muslim-Christian relations, as I said, there's a lot to discuss and to talk about. One is that Islam teaches that the religion should really be co-equal with the government. Mm-hmm. That is, and there have been many efforts over 14 centuries to make the perfect Islamic state, which hasn't been found yet. But the early era, right after the death of Muhammad, was considered ideal. Mm-hmm. What They called the rightly guided caliphs, or the Rashidun. But since that time, other governments and polities have been more or less successful and some less. And there's been great turmoil and many different points of view. So I think one of the questions that Muslims and Christians could discuss is what exactly constitutes an Islamic State. And if that were discussed, I think it might bring some light to the situation that uh, they're facing in Pakistan.
0: Our thanks again to Dr. Jim Jennings of Conscious International for giving us this behind-the-scenes look at how it's really going right now for the Christians who are trying to make a difference at those dangerous borderlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan. He's back for one more episode, number three in this series, on tomorrow's program. I really hope you'll join us then. If you missed any of these episodes, just go back to our website, CompassionRadio.com. Those podcasts are available to you any day. In the meantime, I'd love to have you contact us and let us know how God is stretching your faith in 2022. You can reach me anytime through our website, compassionradio.com, or through this email address, Bram Floria at Compassion Radio.com. I will declare his goodness. I will declare his love. My There's no doubt that trying times bring out the best and the worst in mankind. I pray that God will bring out the very best of Him in you today. Thank you for standing with Compassion Radio in times like this. I think you know that we're a unique voice in Christian radio. Your generosity and your faith in us make it possible for us to continue doing what we do each and every day. Our radio stations, networks, and ministry partners around the world are counting on us to continue what we do so that they can do what they do. Quality Christian teaching and programs come to you because you support it. With all this happening in the world right now, Christian Radio has never been more needed to bring you the truth, comfort, and challenge that we need to live a gospel-filled life in the world. I humbly ask that you not forget us as we do the work we do for you. If you've never given before, would you consider doing so today? If you have supported Compassion Radio in the past, would you consider making us a part of your regular monthly giving plan? Thank you, friend. We're praying God's peace, provision, and courage over you today. The toll-free number is 1-800-868-2478. That's 1-800-868-2478. You can mail Compassion Radio at P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. And we're online 24-7 at CompassionRadio.com. Don't wait, friends. Join us online to find out how you can be involved with this unique and timely ministry.